This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Longshot is a production of McClatchy Studios and iHeartRadio. I'm Alexandreev. And this is a bonus feature for Payback. As you've heard in this podcast, Jessica McDonald's experience as a Black woman playing sport has helped shape her perspectives on soccer and on being Black in America. Those lessons first came from her grandmother, Abby, as Jess began to dominate her youth sports leagues. My grandmother taught us at early age, you're the only Black kid out there, you're the only Black kid at this tournament. And she's like, you can't react the way people are expecting you to react if something happens. We were taught the fact that racism was going to exist. It was just something to expect because we were the only black kids growing up playing in tournaments and things like that. And so we had to carry ourselves in a different manner than any other kid out there. Jess further connected with her identity at the University of North Carolina as an African-American studies major. It was my first time ever learning about true black history. I didn't know anything about black history. The only thing you learn in school growing up, MLK, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, that's it. The topic of racism was at the forefront of public conversation during my early meetings with Jess in the wake of nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd. Police here now firing tear gas into the crowd. Of course I want the conversation to continue, but like, this is a little exhausting because there were times where I was just getting asked the same questions and saying, but what's your experience been like being black? Are you kidding me? Like, where do I even start? You know, like just go and read your history. In recent years, Jess isn't the only black woman to rise to the top of a sport once dominated by white athletes. Serena, you are a champion of all champions. 
Naomi, congratulations on your first Grand Slam title. Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka have upended the tennis world, the same way Simone Biles changed what's possible in gymnastics. <laughs> Money! Simone's got enough gold medals at home. Someone give this girl a crown. <laughs> and at times, all have faced vitriol and criticism that seems to stem from something deeper than a box score. I'm interested in elite Black women's experiences and what are we doing to create very healthy, inclusive environments for them situated in sport. In this bonus episode, you'll hear from Dr. Leisha Carter. She's a sports psychologist and professor who focuses primarily on the experience of Black women athletes at all levels of sport. I look across the spectrum. What are we doing for the everyday mom who wants to maintain physical activity or is trying to get active considering her built environment, her family environment, all the different things. I spoke with Dr. Carter about the overlap of what she calls the isms, racism, sexism, and classism, the superwoman schema that often gets attached to black athletes, and how addressing the way black women experience sport is a key step in dismantling generations old systems of inequality. This conversation has been edited for length and clarity. I am Dr. Leija Carter. I'm a associate professor of feminist exercise and sports psychology at Temple University, as well as the executive director and founder of Coalition for Food and Health Equity. I was a collegiate athlete. I was on scholarship. I was a pole bolter and a discus thrower. And I also wrestled with my own competitive sport anxiety. I didn't have anxiety outside of sport, but I really struggled with anxiety, particularly when I would pole vault. When it came to competition time, I had, you know, all of the somatic symptoms and emotional symptoms of anxiety, but I didn't have it with discus. And so my mentor at the time said, you know, there's individuals that work with athletes around those particular areas. And that was my first introduction to sports psychology, the interest of Black women athletes and what are we doing to create very healthy inclusive environments for them situated in sport is really an outgrowth of understanding and exploring how are we really interrogating all of Black women's experiences across these different domains. And and that's something I wanted to dig into a little bit more is like you mentioned that kind of breaking this area of sports psychology down into identifying factors such as gender, such as race, and and looking at it that way and taking into account all of these, you know, individual experiences that people may have not thought of would have an impact or conversely, sport would have an impact on their lives, I suppose. So I guess my question then is just, why is it so important to look at it through that lens of, of individual experiences, individual identifying factors? You know, I think I look at it through more structural experiences and system-based experiences. Like what are the ways in which racism, sexism, as well as things just from an ecological perspective, right? Like policies, community, organizations. How do all of these things at the intersection of sport and physical activity impact women and girls of color, black women and girls? Simone's got enough gold medals at home. Someone give this girl a crown. Simone Biles. There's a relationship to how she has experienced being an elite Black woman, as well as the experience of the 10-year-old Black girl who might be told that, you know, 
she can't participate in this particular sport because dot, 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 right? Like there's some similarities there. And so when we look structurally at the systems of racism and sexism and classism, I look at it more at this kind of larger system of isms and how they kind of interconnect across Black women's experiences across the board. And I think that I believe that if we address how Black women experience sport, recreation, and physical activity, then we can also really dismantle a lot of other ickiness that other people experience. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Simone Biles. I think we saw Black women athletes being at the forefront of these conversations around mental health and also receiving a lot of backlash for it too. You know, your work focuses on understanding this concept of the strong Black woman schema. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you see that coming into play with either how some of these athletes have been received by the media or in the public eye and also what they're experiencing at the same time. I think there's definitely examples of the ways in which the strong Black woman shows up with the ways in which, you know, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, Serena Williams, as well as Allison Felix and others are are treated um, and narratives are written around them in their personal advocacy, as well as the advocacy in general of others in mental health and maternal health. Some of the elements when it comes to, you know, the superwoman schema is this idea of self-sacrificing, putting the interest of others ahead of yourself. Simone Biles, I think that is probably a prime example. Put mental health first, because if you don't, then you're not going to enjoy your sport and you're not going to succeed as much as you want to. So it's okay. Although she shared that, look, you know, I'm experiencing the twisties or whatever might have been her experience. There was this criticism of set that aside, set whatever it is that you're experiencing aside and take one for the team. I mean, this is sad. This is pathetic. This is disgraceful. She was a little stressed out. And look, she's just there to have fun. She's just there for her, right? And I think what's also wrapped inside of that is this second element of the superwoman ideal is that Black women are supposed to be superhuman and bionic. They're supposed to be impervious to harm. If she got all these mental health problems, don't show up. What Simone Biles did was say, I reject this idea that I'm not supposed to be caring for myself, that I'm not supposed to be connected to what my body needs. It's okay sometimes to even sit out the big competitions to focus on yourself because it shows how strong of a competitor and person that you really are. And so when you put both of those elements together, you get this kind of social psyche that thinks Black women as one. You can't possibly be experiencing any form of vulnerability because you're a Black woman, you're superhuman. The second element is No, you're supposed to take one for the team, which means even if you are experiencing an injury, harm, or weakness, you're supposed to put that aside and you know that you can get us the gold. The issue is that we're trying to win. And Simone Biles is a Black woman. Naomi Osaka is a a biracial woman. Serena Williams is a Black woman. They're, They're supposed to be able to fix things. We've seen this represented in contemporary models of the superwoman. Kerry Washington on Scandal, you know, the fixer, she can fix anything, right? Fixing is winning. Her job is to go out there and get us the gold. She can do this, right? Forget everything else. She's not supposed to feel her feelings. She just does. We know that this idea of self-sacrificing 
is related to chronic illness, stress, depressive symptoms, that when you're not able to care for yourself, you're not able to sustain health. But short term, it's very clear. It's just actual safety that if she were to have actually engaged in what critics asked her to, her life and safety would have been on the line. And when Black women are put into the container of a superwoman ideal, then it is hard for people to see them as human. And so it's very easy for people who rest within that superwoman ideal to reject the idea that a Naomi Osaka would have feelings, would have mental health issues, would be human because they can't see her outside of that box. We'll be back after the break. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel... It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta Visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. 
Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In Jessica's case, in her story, there were clearly microaggressions, but then also clearly just, you know, blatant racism that she was experiencing growing up. Mm -hmm. Her grandmother talked about these same experiences that she had, really, and that she very much informed kind of how Jessica would respond to them. Soccer in the U.S. is this predominantly white sport. Oh, you're going to call me this to my face in the field. And my grandmother would be like, you please believe you better beat her on the field. And I always liked that, but it was pretty much like you keep quiet and just go on about your day. Keep your head down, don't make eye contact, but don't let it make you angry. How, how do you not internalize that though? How do you not lash out after an incident like that occurs and then, or go back home and cry and ask why this is happening? I mean, did that Oh, of course. Oh, I cry all the time. Oh, don't. <laughs> I, I am human being. Yes, of course. I'll never forget. I was the only black girl on the bench for a team I was playing. This was just a couple years ago. I don't want to say who I was playing for at the time. Um, there was a referee. We were lined up, and I was lined up to like walk to the bench. Shin guards like, in hands. Referee came up to me and no one else, and I'm the only black girl on the bench. She only checks me out, like, where are your shin guards? I'm like, I don't need my shin guards right now. I'm not going in the game right now. You need your shin guards. You need to put them on. No, I don't. I'm on the bench right now. Like, leave me alone. No, you need to put your shin guards on or we can we can boot you, like blah blah blah. And I was just like, that's not even a rule. <laughs> like, I'm gonna be on the bench. You know, <laughs> I was coming in at half. I'm like, I will be going in the game in literally an hour. Like, leave me alone. And then my white teammate comes up to me, she's like, why did she do that? And I was just like, you know, kind of pointed to my skin. And she was like, no. And I'm like, yeah, it, it happens. It does. And my teammate was just like, that was horrible. Like, I would never think to do that. I was like, I know, because you're a good person, my friend, you know? It's okay. I'm fine. Let's go sit down on the bench, have some hot cocoa, and, like, chill over here, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, now she's like, I want to say something back, and I'm going to use my platform that I've earned to do so and call out racism and call out sexism. Yes, absolutely. Jessica's experiences, just as with anyone's, these are very real experiences for Black women athletes. And I'm curious how we can sort of turn the conversation more, you know, what can be done on the part of the people that are enacting this in order to either be allies in these situations or to stop them from occurring? Yeah. So how do we like address microaggressions? Because microaggressions can be verbal. They can be postural. It can be anything that conveys behavior that's unwelcoming, Right. The first thing is that we all are products of our environment. Outside of the blatant forms of racism and sexism, most of what we're talking about when we're talking about microaggressions, most people don't know is a microaggression. So these things typically have to be brought to someone's attention in order for them to begin the conversation that, oh, wow, like I... I didn't realize that I'm, I engaged in this form of aggression. My recommendation whenever I talk about microaggressions is you do not need to apologize right then and there. You can honestly say in that moment, thank you for telling me this. If it's okay, I would like to, you know, step away and digest what you shared with me, get informed about this situation because I didn't know. 
I didn't know that this was a thing. And then if you're open to it, can I come back once I'm more informed and have a conversation with you? The second thing is don't victim blame. If someone says what you did was a microaggression, it made me feel, you know, unsafe or invalidated, really allow their experience to be their experience and allow yourself to be open to the possibility that you might have offended someone. So we have to recognize we're not going to be perfect outside of the person calling someone the N-word or outside of someone, you know, doing these very extreme things. Most of the time, it's something that we really would just wouldn't know. However, microaggressions are typically characterized as a thousand little cuts. So they do add up when they do go unaddressed. When we don't address these small little things, as they add up, they do really begin to hurt very deeply. And I think the third thing would be is to validate that person's experience. Thank you for letting me know because you've added to my understanding of the world and of human experience. And I am really going to absorb this. And I think it's hard because it's kind of the chicken or the egg. Most people don't know they've microaggressed. So it does put some element on the aggressor or an ally. And so that conversation has to be had by someone. So that way there's some type of intervention. Yeah, there are a couple of terms that I've seen sort of thrown around with Simone and Naomi, and also when it comes to Jessica and the women named in this particular lawsuit that we're looking at, it tends to be words like greedy. They're being greedy by asking for more and trying to set these boundaries, or it's weak of them to step back and try to take time or ask for help. Why is that part of this kind of construct that maybe needs to be deconstructed? Yeah, I mean, you know, when women fight for their rights, when they fight for for fairness, they're going against a system of patriarchy that is designed to not create and maintain equality. So when you fight against that, one of the quickest reactions is to typecast the opposer as something, right? Particularly as something that doesn't fit within like these passive ideas of womanhood, right? So because it's a woman who is asking for equality, The easiest way to say, okay, well, you're opposing what we in this sexist system don't think you deserve. We're going to typecast you as being unladylike. You're this, you're that, right? And so we have to call sexism for what it is. You know, it's sexist, it's hateful, it's harmful. And the same is done at a much more intersectional level when it's women of color, when it's black women, you know, they're called angry, they're called having an attitude, they're called all these things. And it's just racist and sexist lies and and invalidate women's experiences in a world that is, you know, deeply racist and sexist. The more black women that come out and speak about their instances of racism within sport, speak about their mental health speak about the ways in which they persevere and their own advocacy and activism identity in order to try to disrupt these systems, it tells us that this is real. This is not just one person's experience. It's not the exception, but it's the rule. And until we truly acknowledge that this is the rule for Black women and we hold this fact, we're not going to be able to make systemic change. 
is there any detriment, I guess, to the individual for sharing these experiences, kind of living them publicly without sort of, you know, reliving some of that trauma, I suppose, you know, it, it seems like, but there's also kind of this element of, well, it seems to be helpful for society to understand where things need to change. But there, is there a way to balance that with the needs of the individual? I mean, I think balance is always key. You know, something that you're speaking to is just the general idea of advocacy and that, you know, when people step into their advocacy identity, what are the elements of that? You know, certainly part of engaging in advocacy for oneself and for others, it certainly can bring up, you know, experiences that have been harmful or unhealed and unsettled. One positive is that it can be an open door for someone to seek, you know, mental health support and treatment to really get those areas healed and processed and worked through, right? Another element of that that you just spoke about is that potentially part of that healing process is that engaging in advocacy can give someone a deep sense of purpose and reframe the things that they've experienced, right? So balance is always key, but for some, you know, engaging in advocacy can be something that is deeply part of the healing process. It gives you something to be grounded to and to say, you know what, while this might have been something that happened to me, I'm able to turn those wounds and those past experiences into something positive that might be moving a generation and a community forward. I'm Alexandria. Payback is a production of the Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. It's produced by Kata Stevens, Casey Toth, Julia Wall, and Davin Coburn. The executive producer for iHeartRadio is Sean Tytone. For lots more on this story, and to support journalism like this, visit charlotteobserver.com slash payback or newsobserver.com slash payback. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.